Can we give it up real quick just for John? Man, I just appreciate this guy. I've known him for all of 48 hours now. But, man, I love his heart, and I love where he's taken us on this journey just to, man, to worship and to sing songs about the greatness of our Lord. And that, that is a rare thing uh, oftentimes in our day and age, just to, to proclaim Christ um, and him crucified. So as we do that together, both out of the old uh, and the New Testament together, man, I am delighted. So how is, uh, how's the first 48 hours been? How are we doing tonight? Uh, 24 hours, can I count? Yeah, so good. The, the energy continues to rise. I, I like this, so I, I'm, I'm appreciative of the excitement level. I hope it has been good for you guys. I'm going to need some help tonight, so I just, as you guys think through, I'm out of money, just, I'm, just, I'm putting that out there now, but I am going to need some help to get this done. So I think to, to fully bring home all that God intends for us to maybe to learn and to experience, uh, I'm going to need some hands on stage. So that is coming. Uh, but in the meantime, what, what I hope you see, not just in the speaking and not just in, in what happens up here from, as we're teaching the Word of God, but I think even more importantly, as we talk and we sing together, all that we do, we're trying to walk a very familiar path. And we're trying to make much of Jesus in everything that we do. So if you leave this weekend and you don't remember the details to talk to, that, that's fine. And if you don't remember the, the third worship song we sang, we sang at the second talk, that, that's okay as well. But if you remember that we have a sinless substitute that laid down his life for us, the foreshadowing of which is in the Old Testament and the culmination of all of that is in the new through the person of Jesus Christ, that is what we're here to proclaim boldly together in many, many different ways. So I hope as we tread these paths together, maybe yet again in, in a, a fresh way, that you would be enjoying that. So what have we seen so far as we maybe back up and take some inventory? Uh, last night, we learned about um, this, this picture of God wanting a relationship with us, right? In Genesis, that he desires and made us to, to walk with him intimately, as he did Adam and Eve, right? And then we saw in the Passover this idea that God created uh, a way for us to mend a broken relationship that he provided, again, Jesus Christ through a picture of a lamb, a very sinless substitute so that we could have a right relationship with him. But as you're thinking through Exodus and as you're thinking specifically through the Passover that we saw celebrate that event, a Jew should then be asking, if, if you're asking now the logical question, okay, there was a people that lived in Egypt and their sin needed to be covered just like the Egyptians. Well, what about me? If the Passover is about celebrating what God has done, and we will continue to do that, but it's a reminder of what he has done, how do I, as John so rightly said, how do I, as an unholy person who feels at times so laden with my own sin, how do I interact with the holy God? How do I come to meet him? How do I worship him? How do I interact with him? Well, Leviticus chapter 16 answers that question. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 16. How many of you ever have heard a sermon out of Leviticus? None of you. This is the greatest sermon on Leviticus you will have ever heard. It's also the only sermon on Leviticus you have ever heard. So hopefully this will be beneficial and helpful for us. But that question really is at the core of what Leviticus 16 is about. As we talk through... Uh, Earlier today, the idea of the Passover, we mentioned that this was the beginning of years for a Jew, right? God said our calendar is going to start over. Well, that's not actually fully true. The Jews actually take what we do on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and they divided it into actually two separate holidays. One, just like we would go from December 31st to January 1st and, and turn the calendar over, that's physically what Passover is. But the other aspect that we do on New Year's is what? As you guys gather together on New Year's and you celebrate at least maybe New Year's Eve, 
What do you then begin to do on New Year's Day? What are you thinking about that next year? What are you making? Resolutions, right? You're thinking about next year. What am I going to do different, right? What did I do last year? Well, that's really what chapter 16 of Leviticus is all about. In fact, there are seven feasts and festivals in the religious calendar where God basically mandated his people, hey, I want you to stop. I want you to stop the hustle and bustle of life. I want you to stop working, and I want you to pause and reflect. I want you to invite me into your world in case I'm already not there. And I want you to, to think about all these things. And these feasts and festivals that God had mandated for his people revolved around the harvest. And the vast majority of them were celebratory, right? As you brought in the barley or the grain, God would say, hey, let's stop. And as a community, let's celebrate me. Let's celebrate the fact that I brought the rain and I created all these things and I've blessed my people. Let's celebrate the Lord. And that was mostly what these were about. But this festival, this feast that we're going to look at this evening, called the Day of Atonement, was not that. It was very contemplative. It was very introspective. It was very solemn in its its purpose and its reminder. It was also very communal in the way that it was handled. And in fact, it's the climax of the entire Jewish feast and festival year. Everything led up to it, and then everything came down for it. It was the mountain peak in the year of the Jew. And here's why. In Leviticus chapter 16, we're going to start with the end, and then we'll come back to the beginning. Verse 30 of chapter 16 tells us what this day is about. And I want you to hear the seriousness in Moses' words as he pens this. He says, For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So you as a Jew... On this day, you knew on this particular day, Yom Kippur, as they would have called it as a faithful Jew, this day God was going to atone for my sins. He was going to cover my sins, and I would be clean before the Lord. I would be made right with God. So this is a, a very, very big deal. And you see a word that we sung about just a minute ago that you see in this text that on this day, atonement will be made. This is what this day is called, the Day of Atonement. The word is loaded with meaning. In fact, this word is used in the book of Leviticus 102 times, 49 times, sorry, in your Old Testament, 49 times in Leviticus and 13 times in this chapter alone. So the the million-dollar question to unlocking this, this text, Leviticus chapter 16, revolves around what does this idea of atonement mean? What is being gotten at here? Uh, the best translation that we would have for that word to atone literally means to, to forgive or to pardon, to appease, or maybe to cancel. Uh, maybe the best English equivalent is to, to cover. It literally means to maybe refer to the act of removing something from the view by placing something between the object and the viewer. Last night as I walked off stage, Dean Dan was back there with a plate of chocolate chip cookies. I have what you might call a small chocolate chip cookie problem in my life. I can't eat one. I usually eat like 10 at a time. And when I needed walking back there with someone to atone those cookies, I needed them covered. I needed them removed from my sight. That's the idea behind this word. And on this day, Moses is saying in chapter 16, verse 30, this is what's going to happen for the nation of Israel. Your sins will be covered. You will be clean before the Lord. And look at now again at verse 31. It shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. God says leading into this day, 
I want you to humble yourselves. In fact, there's a holiday that occurs 10 days before this that really started this, this whole process. And kind of like we would do on New Year's, as you begin to move up to that time, you begin to think about and reflect on the last year, Jews are actually commanded to do this. God says, I want you to, to think about what your last year with me has been like. I want you to process that. And for 10 days, I want you to be introspective and think about what you have been like this year, what you maybe you need to improve on, whatever it may be, but I want you to focus on those issues. And in Leviticus chapter 23, this is so serious, God says, on this day, the day of atonement, you're going to fast. There's no eating, there's no drinking. You're going to learn that man can't live off of bread and water alone, as Jesus says. You're going to cling to me. You're going to do no work. It's going to be a day of solemn rest for you, reflective and, again, introspective in nature. Because the day of atonement is coming, and this day is so serious in the Jewish calendar, God wants to make sure that their hearts and their minds and their souls are prepared for what's about to happen, to reflect again and think about God. Now, go back to the very beginning of chapter 16, verse 2, and I want you to notice how this begins, how this day of atonement works. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, who is the high priest, tell him that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So Moses is instructed by God to tell his brother Aaron, hey, on this day, he can't just do things willy-nilly. He needs to listen to how this process is going to work. In fact, I'm very specific about how this day of atonement unfolds. And this day revolves around two things. Well, one thing and one person. The thing is the tabernacle, and the person is the high priest, Aaron, that we just read about. I want to show you a picture of what the tabernacle would have looked like. I think Byron's got one back there for us. This is a recreation of the tabernacle. To size and scale, this is literally in Israel. Um, I haven't had a chance to be there, but it is an incredible place. And they remade the tabernacle as it would be to scale. And this structure that God told the Israelites to build in the book of Exodus literally takes up a third of the book of Exodus. And there are all these elements that are in there, right? So inside the tent-looking structure that you see up there are all the things that we just read about in verse 16, or sorry, in verse 2 of chapter 16. The ark, the mercy seat, uh, all of those things, the veil, and this is where the Shekinah glory or the presence of God existed, right? And around this thing is the Israelites would camp in the wilderness after God freed them from Egypt. There would be a, a million and a half, maybe to three million people that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they camped around this structure, the center of which they believed their God resided. And that's exactly what God said. In fact, inside of that, you're going to see a picture here now of the ark and the mercy seat. If you've seen the old school Indiana Jones, this is what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, right? A four by two by two rough, uh, rough structure, uh, the top of which, that lid that's on top of it, is made out of solid gold. And those things that are kind of got their, their hands up or their wings, those are two angels that are covering the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. This was called the mercy seat, the lid that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, made of solid gold, and that word, that thing, is literally called the place of covering. That's what the mercy seat that sits on top of the ark literally means. So that's the tabernacle. That's the most inward workings of it, right? Uh, and the second thing that the Day of Atonement revolves around is the high priest. Look at verse 4 as we continue now to hear about his role, Aaron's role in this process. It says, On this day he shall put on a holy linen tunic, 
and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. God goes into great detail to say, I want you to wear on this day this certain outfit. Now what's odd is the high priest normally didn't wear the outfit that's described here in verse 4. This is what he normally wore. This very fancy, ornate outfit. In fact, there's an entire chapter in Exodus, 43 verses that describe the outfit that the high priest of the nation of Israel is supposed to wear. I mean, God cares about this level of detail. You can see on his chest, there's 12 stones. Those represented the 12 tribes of Israel. He's got on his shoulders more representations of them because his job is to mediate between God and the people, right? So this is the normal 364-day-a-year outfit that the high priest would normally wear. However, on this day, did you see in verse 4 what he's to wear? Did you see a word that was repeated there over and over? It's like linen, linen this, linen that. This is more than likely what he probably would have looked like. A little stiff in that picture, but you kind of get the idea. Not this fancy garb, not this ornate, um, look-at-me type of uh, garb, if you will, but here it's very simple. A white, basically, bathrobe that would have taken the attention off himself and put that on God. And God says, when you go into the Holy of Holies, when you are performing the ceremony that I'm about to walk you through in the Day of Atonement, this is what you are going to wear. Again, a very simple uh, thing for that day. Okay? Now, as you look at verse 3 and verse 5, Aaron is instructed on this day to get five animals. Look at those with me. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 3. It says, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, a bull for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. Now look at verse 5. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel, from the people, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So five things. A bull for a sin offering. This is going to be for Aaron and his family. A ram for a burnt offering. Two goats and another ram. So five animals that he's going to bring. And the purpose of these is to make Israel clean, to atone them before God. A similar picture that we saw in the book of Exodus earlier this morning. But I want you to notice in this process, who has to go first? Look at verse 6. It says, Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. So before this high priest can stand before God and man and atone or cover their sins, what he has to do is make atonement for himself because he's an imperfect high priest. He has sinned just like the people. And to walk into the presence of God laden with sin meant instant and instantaneous death for sure. God says, I'm serious about this. So Aaron, I want you to do this. In fact, as you read on, Verses 11 through 14 describe this process for just Aaron in great detail. And in fact, in verse 13 specifically, Aaron is warned by God, hey, don't mess this up. I take this very seriously. And in fact, if you do this incorrectly, if you go in with a a cavalier attitude and don't do this exactly how I say to do it, you'll die. I will physically take your life. So it's a very serious thing. Now, look at verses 7 and 8 with me. After Aaron now has completed this for himself and cleansed himself to stand before a holy God, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meaning. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Now these are the two goats that we mentioned in verse 5. God said, gather all these animals. 
And two of them I want you to specifically get from the people, from the congregation, and they are going to be a sin offering. And you are going to perform this ordeal at the entrance of the tabernacle. And you're going to cast lots or basically roll dice to see which goat is going to be which. And we see one is described as for the Lord. This is similar to the Passover lamb that we saw this morning. This lamb or this goat here will be sacrificed. In verse 9, we'll see that coming up. But the second goat, do you see that description? It's going to be a scapegoat. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. Now, it's odd about this. If you know your book of Leviticus, we're talking about what is a, a sin offering, which means exactly what it sounds like it means. It's an offering for sin. But in the first seven chapters of Leviticus that talk about all the offerings that you could bring to God, a sin offering was one of them. But it was only ever one thing. If you sinned, you brought a goat, a bull, a ram, a pigeon, whatever it may be, but you only brought one thing. So the question is, why two? Why does Aaron, or God specifically, have Aaron bring two goats for this sin offering? That is the million-dollar question of this passage. And remember, this is a picture. God is showing his people something. In verse 9, he continues, Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. So this first goat is going to be the sin offering. Now notice in verse 15 what happens to that goat. It says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. This was for himself. And to sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. So Aaron's going to take some of the blood from that that goat that died. And he's going to bring it inside the veil, a place he could only go one time, and only one person could do this uh, every year. And it was only Aaron one time a year on this day. And he says, you're going to take that blood from this goat that was slain on your behalf, and you're going to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, the, the atonement cover, the thing that covers. Now, if you know about the Ark of the Covenant, inside of that Ark is the Ten Commandments, the broken law of God that Israel has violated. And as a holy God then looks down on this broken law that he sees from above, in between this broken law and God is the covering of that broken law, covered now by the blood. It's a beautiful picture of how God sees their brokenness, covered by the blood of this lamb, or by this goat specifically. Now the question then remains, what about this second goat? What about this second sin offering? Why do we again have this goat? Look at verse 10. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Did you notice how this goat is described? I'm reading out of a NASB, by the way. My version in verse 10 says this is called the scapegoat. Is anybody reading out of a different version that has a different word for scapegoat? What do you got? Azazel. What version are you reading out of? ESV, maybe? Okay, yeah, ESV translates it differently. That literally is the Hebrew word, azazel, means scapegoat. And some of our English translations just literally put the Hebrew right in there because they didn't exactly know how to translate it. But we understand what a scapegoat is in our meaning. It's two words in the Hebrew, goat and away, that are combined. It's the goat that's going to go away. It's a familiar term in English. When I talk about a scapegoat, what's a scapegoat? Say again. Yeah, someone's going to get blamed for something, right? They didn't do it, but they're going to take the fall. They're going to get blamed for this thing that they didn't do. That's the idea of this goat, right? It's going to take the fall or take the blame. And did you notice, is this goat going to die? 
No. This goat is going to remain alive, right? It's not killed. And we're going to make atonement on it according to verse 10 and send it away into the wilderness. Now, verse 21, it says, Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel, all their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the man who stands in readiness. Do you see the picture? I don't think you do. I need three volunteers. All right, I saw you, blonde hair right there, and you in front of, in the hat, uh, and then all the way in the back in the middle, okay? All right, come on. Thank you for being courageous and volunteering. All right, tell me your name. Savannah. Savannah, nice to meet you, Savannah. Ryan, Ryan Savannah, and Jalen. All right, so you're going to Rochambeau real quick because two of you are going to have kind of a crummy job. And one of you is going to get to be Aaron the high priest, which I think is pretty rad, okay? So, Rochambeau, who's going to be Aaron? So, fight it out. Oh, a tie. Oh, all right. So, and now you two compete, all right? All right, so you're the high priest? All right. So, Ryan is our high priest. We will call him Aaron moving forward. This is Aaron the high priest. And now we have two goats, okay? Sorry, ladies. It just, so, I... <laughs> Do you know what goat noises make? I was having this conversation with my kid the other day. I have no idea. All right. So we got two goats, all right? You are going to be our goat for the Lord. Sorry, you have to die. It's, it's been great knowing you, though. You're good for that? All right. And you are going to be the scapegoat, right? So according to this text, Aaron, here is what you do. You're going to have to slay this goat, right? Now, we're not going to go there, but the idea is, so you would die. Your blood would be sprinkled upon the altar, right? So this this picture we've seen before. Yes, we saw it in the Passover, and we've seen it here. It's the goat that atones for sin. You did a great job. You can go sit back down right now, okay? But now we have, we have a second goat. Now, this is odd. It's described the same way as a sin offering, but we haven't seen this before. And I want you to notice, Aaron, what you're going to be doing, okay? It says that you are going to lay both of your hands on uh, the head of the live goat, okay? So... Are we COVID-friendly here? Is this okay? I mean, maybe you don't have to actually lay them on if you guys... They're perfect, okay? And here's what you're doing, okay? You are, according to verse 21, confessing over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel. By the way, you are the sons of Israel, okay? You are 1.5 to 3 million people that are watching this happen at the doorway of the tent of meeting, at the tabernacle. And you, for 10 days, have been thinking about your sin. You've been reflecting on what's about to happen today because God told you in this moment he's going to cover your sin and that you'll be able to walk with him for another year moving forward. So you've been waiting for this to happen. You understood the first picture, but this one is new to you. So you are praying over her or our goat, all the iniquities of the sons of Israel, all their transgressions in regard to all of their sins. So start praying, okay? Bring it. Now, you, you get creative freedom. You've got license. Perfect, okay? <laughs> Bad goat. <laughs> so for a minute, just think about, what did this look like? How long did this take to pray for all the iniquities of the sons of Israel, all their transgressions? And while Ryan, Aaron, sorry, is doing this, listen to what these words mean. They're very specific in verse 21, right? The iniquities has the idea of sins of ignorance. It's like speeding and you didn't know it. Like you were accidentally speeding. You're like, oh, I got pulled over. I had no idea the speed limit was 65, right? 
That's one type of sin that, that Ryan's praying for, okay? The second, this idea of transgressions are like high-fisted, rebellious actions to God. I knew it was sin, and I did it anyway. I knew the speed limit was 65, and I chose to drive over it. It sins with a hardened heart. And that last word, sins, that's mentioned in verse 21, has the idea of, of missing the mark. It's all-inclusive. So all of the sins of Israel are being prayed for. Now, do you relate with this a little bit? Because, again, these aren't random sins. These are your sins. They're your sins. They're your sins. This is personal. Are you with me? These are not somebody else's sins that the high priest is praying over his people. This is intimate. This is personal. Do you see the picture of what's going on here? Say yes. Okay, good. Great. You guys can go sit down, okay? I want you to see this. I want you to feel what the Israelites would have felt in this moment. This isn't some random thing. They've been awaiting this moment, and they're seeing now their sins being put on this, on this goat. Now, why would this be the picture? Why is God showing them this? What is God going to do now with this goat? Where does this goat go after the sins are preyed upon this goat? What does the text say in verse 21? Send away into the, into the wilderness, into the desert. So the picture is this. Stay with me. Your sin has been atoned for. This goat died where you should have died. But your sins still feel a little bit present, do they not? And what God is saying in this moment is all of your sins are being preyed on over this animal. They are being transferred onto the head of this goat, the entire nation of Israel. And what happens with that goat and hence with your sin? It is, it's gone. Do you see the picture of what God's trying to do? To show these people just like you and just like me that tend to wrestle with hanging on to their sin. Even though they've seen these pictures, they still feel laden with sin at times. Even though God says in Micah chapter 7, verse 19, he will again have compassion upon us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Even though in Psalm 103, verse 12, God says, as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. How do you feel when you guys sin? when you wrestle with maybe whatever sin comes to mind in your head. I can tell you from a guy who's still trying to walk with Jesus after 26 years that I have not figured this thing out. And I still wrestle with anger issues in my life that prop up every now and again. And I'll say something in anger that I know I shouldn't say, that the Holy Spirit convicted me of even before I said it. And yet it still came out of my mouth. And I have to apologize often to my wife and even my kids and those closest to me because I'll say stuff that's just not not spirit-led. And there are times that even after I've apologized, even after I've asked for forgiveness and said, hey, listen, I blew that. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for what I said? I tend to hang on to that sin. I feel in those moments I need to, to, to hang on to that myself. When I was in, I think it was elementary school, fifth grade, our family went on a camping trip together out in East Texas, right out in the Piney Woods, very similar to here, but a lower elevation in East Texas. And we had this beautiful Labrador retriever named Shadow, right? And she was uh, on this kind of rope all night long outside, and a skunk got into our camp. 
And late into the, the, the hours of the morning, right, we heard this wrestling going on in the camp, and this skunk basically got chased by my dog into a trash can. And my dog, Shadow, chases after this skunk into the trash can, and you can imagine how this went down. That skunk sprayed my dog immediately in the face. And there was this yelping and this miserable, like, right, this initial pain of the, the incident. But what lingered long after the initial pain of the incident, obviously, that was the smell that hung around. And we did everything that we knew how to do to get this stink out of our dog, right? Tomato juice and peanut butter and all these home remedies that are supposed to work, none of them worked. It was months before, ultimately, that smell would go away. And sin is very similar. There's the initial thing, the initial occurrence that is painful and happens, but what's often more painful in our lives is the lingering effects of sin that we tend to hang on to, the guilt and the the shame that we grapple with on our own. David in Psalm 32 describes it like this, to be freed from this idea. Listen to this. After his sin uh, with a woman by the name of Bathsheba, he says, how blessed is he whose transgression has been forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, David says, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David says the same three words that are mentioned in Leviticus chapter 16. I presented to the Lord my iniquity, my sin, and my transgressions, all of it, and God forgave me. And not just that, but it says he removed the guilt of my sin. Even the guilt of his sin is covered in the sense of the the lamb that we see in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, there's a difference between conviction that leads us to confession, that leads us to say, hey, that was wrong. Lord, I did not need to do that, and I need to feel a sense of of, um, dishonoring to the Lord about that. That's on the front side of sin. But then there's the stuff that we hang on to on the back side, where that sin has been confessed, that sin has been dealt with by the Lord, and that we then tend to hang on to the guilt and the the shame maybe that, that linger after the moment. And the problem is we were never meant to carry that, just like the Jews weren't either. And as they saw on that day of atonement, on that day, they saw their sin paid for and they saw their sin removed. And friends, the beauty of this system, obviously, is it's pointing us to something bigger and better. The problem with this system is that it's temporary and it's weak. Listen to the author of Hebrews as he describes this entire Old Testament sacrificial system. He says, every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. That sin, in a sense, is still there because we have both a sin in deed and a sin in nature. And as soon as those people walk out of the tabernacle, they're going to start sinning again just like you and I would. And a year later, they're going to have to go through this process every year. They're going to need their sin atoned for. So in a sense, they are hoping, wouldn't it be great if we could have one lamb who could pay for the sins of all of us one time forever? And friends, that ultimately, obviously, is the picture of what Jesus Christ had done on our behalf. He is both the sin offering 
and the scapegoat. Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Jesus is that first goat. But also, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, he made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin was physically transferred onto Jesus Christ. And on that cross, it was paid for. And as the picture of the scapegoat, that sin is gone. Past, present, and future. It has been removed from all of us forever. Friends, Jesus is both our offering for sin and our scapegoat. The Bible says that if we are faithful, if we confess our sins, that he rather is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need not hang on to that anymore. So any of the guilt and shame that you may be carrying around with you, if Jesus has paid for that sin which he has, it is done and it is finished. In the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, when Jesus sees you, when God the Father sees you, covered by the blood of his Son, he no longer condemns you for any of your sin, past, present, or future, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Friends, do you see these pictures? Both in the Old Testament, through the the picture of a scapegoat and a slain goat, and ultimately in the picture of Jesus Christ, who laid his life down for us and fulfilled all of this so that we can abandon sin and the shame and the guilt that comes from our sin and walk knowing that God sees us as righteous in his eyes. Not only did Jesus take our sin, but the Bible says that he gave us his righteousness. So when God looks down in this moment right now from heaven looking at you who've put your faith in Jesus Christ, he sees you as righteous as perfect as his child friends can we celebrate that reality tonight will you do that with me i'm going to invite john back up one last time and we're going to sing these truths we're going to proclaim the greatness of our god through these pictures and through these shadows now that we get to see in the old testament that are fulfilled in jesus christ we are going to sing about the one who has taken away our sin